QC Pod is a production of the Queen's Podcast Lab. This is QC Pod. I'm Jason Tuga. QC Pod features the people, projects, movements, and ideas that make up the Queen's College community. To learn more, visit us at queenspodcastlab.org slash qcpod. Today, Timothy So joins us in the QC Pod. So is a recent graduate of Queens College with a degree in English. While he was a student at QC, he worked as an emergency medical technician, a demanding job at the best of times. When the COVID-19 pandemic hit New York, So found himself on the front lines. The job of an EMT is as much about human encounters as it is about medicine. So is here today to share some of his stories about those encounters, as well as insights about the pandemic from his perspective as an essential worker during these past several months, as New York City and the world have been transformed by the novel coronavirus. He'll also share his thoughts about how a degree in English helps him in his job in emergency medical services. Welcome, Tim. It's great to have you here. Obviously, you've had a lot of extraordinary experiences working as an EMT in the last six months, and we will definitely talk about COVID-19 and how that's affected your job. But before we do that, I wonder if you might just talk a little bit about a typical day in the life of an EMT. I don't think most people know how it works. The day is pretty much blend. Um, you know, when you're working, I work two different um, EMS jobs, and so. Um, they kind of blend together a lot of the times, but for for me, an extraordinary day. This is going to sound kind of cliche, but like it's just a day where you get to feel like you made an impact in somebody's life. Um, whether that be you saved somebody's life, you know, or if you just you know made somebody feel better. Um, those are like the calls that really stick out for me, and that's the rewarding part of the job. Um, Will you tell us a story? about a day like that i have a, i have a couple um um i was just talking about this with my partner the other day but there's patients that just stick out in memory for really no reason either it could be a really simple transaction or it could be a um you know when you're doing cpr ventilating them and saving a life and and it could be that too but um i think one story that sticks out for me um and uh was it actually happened maybe like a couple of days ago where we responded to a call for a it came in as um a wellness check which usually means they're either not answering the phone or something or they're making contact them or somebody calls because they're worried about this person's health so we go we go up this um really big hill up like these back roads and we get to this house and um, the wife answers the door and saying that uh, the doctor had called because her husband said that he wanted to hurt himself. Right. So we get this all the time and the the, uh, the cops are already there for wellness checks. A lot of times the cops respond with us. Um, sometimes it's not necessary like in this case, but it's just how the system is run. Um, and we get up to them and we talk to the patient and the patient seems fine and he's happy and he's talking and he's saying how he has back pain and um, that, you know, and then he says, well, I, my back pain hurts so much. Maybe I should just like kill myself. And that's pretty, 
harsh. You know, it comes, it came out of nowhere, right? And so then now you have to really question that. You have to really talk to the person because if they're a danger to themselves, you know, or others, you have to ask those questions and see what they're talking about. And throughout, like, we were there for maybe like an hour, which is not supposed to be there that long. (laughs) But we were there talking to the patient because what this patient needed is not really medicine, per se, but just um, a conversation. And he was telling us what the root of his problem was that he needed, he, he lost his doctor because his doctor retired for his pain management. And he hasn't been able to leave the house and go see another doctor. And they can't figure out why he has back pain. And so that's why he's having these feelings of, you know, suicidal intention. And I think for an EMS writer, this is a pretty typical call of like somebody saying they want to hurt themselves or, and, you know, you have to give more emotional support rather than medical support. Um, But what we did was we gave him options, what he wants to do to go to the hospital or, or, you know, try calling a doctor. And we brought him to the hospital and um, helped him talk to the nurse about getting him a pain management doctor and things like that. And that call stuck out to me because that was a rewarding or an extraordinary day for me because we were able to help this person get where they needed to be and get them more, um, like, in 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 a better place right uh, mentally and um well yeah i mean while that's not really a medical call i think that's a real big thing of what we as ems providers do it's um helping alleviating some of that suffering that they're having whether it be you know an injury or mentally you know i imagine there must be plenty of difficult days too i mean what makes one particularly difficult it gets difficult when you have calls that you feel like powerless or like you know helpless in um a lot of cardiac arrests uh end up in death uh which is pretty frustrating um when you work on them pretty hard and you find out later that they didn't make it those are those are pretty tough or when you even like when you go to a call and there's like abuse or um you know, any of those factors that is beyond your control, you know, it's hard to sometimes to deal with that. Yeah, I bet. What do you have to do in order to prepare yourself to deal with such intimate encounters with people suffering and with death on such a regular basis? You kind of become pretty jaded. I think that's like the way a lot of us cope. Um, You know, we talk about it often, especially with with COVID. Um, Mm. I've been told I've been jaded about COVID. (laughs) Um, And it's just, you know, you'll see other EMTs like make jokes on like Mm. pretty serious scenes or or, like talk about death in a very um, whimsical way. And I think that's just the way that you cope with, you know, the suffering Mm -hmm. that you deal with to the day to day. Yeah, I mean, from my perspective, you don't seem jaded. You seem really reflective about your work. But I guess those two things are not mutually exclusive. I don't know, maybe it would be useful to hear a little more detail about what it means to get jaded in a medical profession, because it's true across all of the medical professions, right? Yeah, it's uh, it's interesting how easily you get used to anything <laughs> that could happen. Um, you know, when you're in this type of job, you see everything and people's in all type of states and um it's just uh 
you know, me and my coworkers like to say the only thing that really gets to us are like, you know, like pediatric calls. Those you can never really get used to. Um, but uh, the other day I was talking to, you know, um, a friend I have about COVID. And then at the end of this conversation that we we're having, she told me that, um, well, it's hard for you to understand because you you work in the medical field. So you're jaded to, you know, people's, I guess, anxiety of COVID, which I thought was really interesting because um, I don't know. I, I mean, I don't feel like I am not taking COVID seriously or anything like that, but I guess it's just I'm around it all the time that it's been so it's been so easy for me to kind of like, I guess, not show my anxiety or show like um, the, the problems I might be having. Um, but um, I think uh, like the other day, my my um, partner said that she wants to stop wearing masks <laughs> because she's just like, well, we don't have that many COVID calls. Right. And um, I mean, that's not really being jaded, but that's being like complacent of what's been going on. Um, and I think, you know, it's just uh, that's just interesting. That was just interesting to me that she said that. Um, but um, I mean, I knew like, after a year, I was pretty, I guess, jaded when we I just worked a, um, a, a call where somebody was stabbed. Right. And it was like just bleeding all over the place. And right after we were cleaning the ambulance of the blood um, and we were talking about like what we we're going to eat for dinner, you know, while we're doing that. And I think people looking at that seems like that's funny and that's weird. Um, but for us, like, it's just normal, I guess, you know, that's really the thing on our minds. <laughs> yeah. I mean, it's a job and you got to eat and you got to cope. Shifting gears a little bit, let's talk about COVID and, and especially those early days. What's it been like? It was a interesting time because everything, as you know, evolved rapidly and, and, and we got different information every day, every week. You know, before it was just like flu-like symptoms and they're talking about they had abdominal pain and then you've you look back at the week and you had, you know, 40 patients that had abdominal pain, right? That's like a very typical call. And you think like, did you get, did they have COVID? You know, you weren't wearing a mask, things like that. Um, the early days were really rough because a lot of information wasn't known. Um, these patients would deteriorate like really fast. Um, it was like a sudden thing for a lot of these people. So at that time, I think like the cardiac arrest number went up like 400% or something like some number like that. I think the New York post said, um, and you could see it every day. You would get a cardiac arrest maybe once a week, you know, um, maybe not at all. And then now it was every day you were getting cardiac arrest. Um, and so that was pretty tough. Um, it's died down now. Um, the a number and, uh, we're almost getting into a place where we're we're comfortable, like we're we're being a little lax on procedures. But um, yeah, for sure, the beginning was was tough with that. It was how was it in terms of resources and support during those early days, PPEs, all that kind of stuff? Oh, terrible! Yeah, terrible. <laughs> uh, I'm sure you've read some stuff, but 
it was, you know, a lot. I work two different companies, and one is transport only, right, on the side of EMS, and the other one is 911 and transport. And so with that, the 911 was a little more supplied, but we were, I remember not getting any N95s. I would have to, I had old ones and I just used those for weeks. Um, and they didn't get them for a while. Uh, and gowns were hard to come by. You kind of had to, um, be a little sneaky in the hospital and try to take a gown if you could. Um, but yeah, N95s, even wipes to wipe down the ambulance was just a rarity, you know, and mm-hmm. hospitals will crack down if you try to take it from them. Yeah. yeah it's a little tough. Did you feel unsafe? Um, did mm. I feel unsafe? Yeah, I mean, at some points, you, I, I was just pushing through it. So I think at the time, I was kind of like, you know, whatever I can get, I'll, I can take. I wasn't thinking too much about the safety, but when I look back at it, yeah, it was pretty unsafe conditions. Like, you know, the, I mean, I know nurses in the hospital will get one mass issue issued to them, and they put them in a plastic, like a paper bag, and then they clean them later on and give it back to them the next day. For us, it was just. After you had your N95, you had to put it in your pocket or you had to like wear it all day and then the next day put it back on. And so, yeah. And I know a lot of my coworkers got sick. Has that gotten better? Um, I think it has improved for sure. Um, when I, where I work up in Yonkers, it got a, a lot better. We were issued N95s every shift um, that was available to us. They even out like had hired an outside company um, to um, clean the ambulances after you had a COVID call. Um, and so that's gotten a lot better, but there's still some shortages of N95s. Um, a lot of us use the the KN95, which is from China. Um, it's not really accepted places to use them, but we have those. And um, I think they're trying to prepare for a second wave. The first wave happened so quickly and so intensely and New York shut down so quickly and you were out on the streets like one of the few people, right? The first responders were out there seeing what was going on in a way that most of us never did. I'm just curious to hear what those experiences were like. What was it like out there? I think one of the biggest things that I was seeing that like I guess shocked me and saw like how the severity of the situation um, besides the calls were how empty Manhattan was you know how fast we were getting to these calls when before it would take us like 15 minutes to get down a couple blocks and now it's like four or five because it was empty um even during the daytime and that was weird to see you know um yeah um yeah so the emptiness of the streets for sure was a, a big thing um when we would see the um the refrigerated morgues um i think by bellevue hospital and uh they had like transformed like this parking lot by the uh, Emmy's office into like just a row of refrigerated trucks. Um, pretty, pretty interesting. I think one thing that stuck out to me and I, I guess kind of shook me was um, we were transporting to a hospital and we brought a patient in. Everything was normal. Um, you know, the protocols got really strict. So you like had to wait outside and um, we were fully gowned up and masks, even though you, even though they might not have it, you still had to take the precautions. Um, but when I brought the patient inside the ER, everybody was, you know, um, 
like the main ER where everybody was um, laying down in different gurneys. There was one gurney in the middle, like let's say there was like six gurneys. There was one um, stretcher um, with a, a body bag on top of it, mixed in with live people. Um, and the ER was packed to the brim. And it was because that the truck was full, that the refrigerated morgue truck was full, you know? And that, that I remember being like, and everybody's like working as like normal and um, you know, where everybody's just all these people who are sick are just, you know, laying in bed neck near a dead body. And um, I remember being like, wow, this is and, and crazy. You know, it kind of shook me a little bit, honestly. Um, and yeah. And, you know, I remember talking to the nurse about it and yeah, she told me that it was just that everything was full. They had no place to put the body, you know? Um, yeah. Yeah. That, that experience was really interesting. Um, I mean, we were doing calls by that time we had been doing, you know, like 10 calls a day, so whatever number we had. Um, and that, and that was, I was still running. Okay. And then when I saw that, I just, it just showed me like how bad, I guess the situation was, you know, in our job, we like to say like, we, we just deal with a patient for like 30 minutes or an hour. Right. You kind of like, you know, just it's kind of like a uh you just have to be serious or i guess like deal with that that suffering for 30 minutes and then you take a break right but um during covid and things like that it was constantly just you're getting bombarded with calls and you keep seeing the hospitals and then you know you're losing patients left and right and it's just like you, you know we do like um if you work transport, you do like these vent jobs with paramedics and people who are ventilators. And you, you know, I transported like this twenty-year-old, you know, um, girl who was on a hundred percent oxygen on a ventilator, and that's that's pretty terrible, um, you know. And you just know like you're bringing them to somewhere else; they're probably not going to make it. And then it's just uh, it, it was rough, you know. Like um, you get bombarded, and then the news and. Thanks. Everything all at once. Um, you mentioned the, I don't know if it was pressure or just kind of a set of regulations uh, that went under the title treat and release. And I would imagine the rationale for this is we need to keep as many beds in the hospitals free as possible. Uh, but I'm curious to know how it felt to be enacting those policies and what kinds of effects did you see because of them? Yeah. So the, the treat and release is a, like a protocol, right? Because um, when you get to a call, you're not really telling the patient that they shouldn't be going to the hospital. But the rationale behind it was that if they are COVID positive or they don't have something debilitating that needs to be seen right away, it reduces the, the amount of beds in the ER because they were packed. And also, it reduces um, risk of transmission, right? Because what what you'd see, like at certain city hospitals, you'd see like, uh, you know, a room that's meant for one person and like six people sitting in that same room in chairs, like huddling over an oxygen tank, it all struggling to breathe. And so those people, if one person was sick, they all got sick. And so that's the problem. And um, I think that that's why that this pro protocol was released. It wasn't released everywhere, um, but like up in upstate and things like that, people were using it. Um, 
just to reduce ER admissions and and COVID um, spread. But um, it was interesting. Uh, I think it gave more um, like more uh, power, I guess, to the EMTs. Kind of like being able to like letting letting the patient know that you know if you don't need to go, you shouldn't go. Not like you're telling them they can't, but just kind of helping them move in a direction to stay home if they didn't have to. Um, I think it helped be more proactive in like not just following what the system is kind of made for, right? Where like, because, you know, you, you get the patient, no matter really what, if they have a toe injury, like a toe pain, you, you could take them to the hospital, right? You can't deny them that, right? But you take them to the hospital and then they get charged this ambulance ride. And then they go to the ER and they get charged this ER bill, right? So it's a system that kind of like they want you kind of to do that. Not like they don't tell you to do that, but that's yeah, that's how it feels, right? So the treat release, it felt like, well, now this is more, you know, I guess more focused on like the patient care, more focused on like the overall wellness of the of the patient, because this is like sort of selfless that so you're not getting that you don't get paid for this if i respond to a call and i don't take the patient whoever company that is i'm working for doesn't get paid and that was actually a big problem i think the new york post or the new york times wrote about it or maybe wall street journal wrote about it how ems companies are taking large financial hits because of that and i think like that's interesting to see in this like i think could open a good dialogue on on how EMS is run in the country, you know, um, a for-profit or like, you know, fee-based calls is, is interesting. Um, and, you know, I work for two private companies, but one does 911. And so they're contracted by the, by the government, by the, by the city government. Um, they're just interesting to see, but, um, for sure, the treatment release, I think was a great idea. I think, um, you know, it helped reduce. It helps reduce transmissions, and it helps just be a more advocate for the patient. Um, you know, because a lot of uh, we like to say that a lot of the, of the calls, like maybe like ninety eight, ninety five percent of the calls are are BS, <laughs> and the five percent are, are real calls. And and I think um, Josh Syme uh, talks about that in his book, where there's the good calls and then the, and like the BS calls. Um, and, you know, I always found it interesting that what constitutes a good call is somebody being hurt and suffering. And we kind of rely on that, right, to be in service, to to get to be get the funding we need to work and, and get paid to do what we do. So we rely on human suffering, but we also supposed to help fix and alleviate human suffering. It's kind of like paradoxical. Yeah, it really shows you how anything medical is social and psychological and emotional right and and you're in the role of being in direct human to human contact to figure out how to negotiate all that i think you know that joseph cohen who is a sociology professor at queen's college runs a podcast called sociocast and recently it featured the scholar josh heim who's written a book about the social roles of emts and he makes this argument that EMTs are on the front lines of social suffering, particularly with poor people and people of color. And that he makes the argument, this is not the fault of the EMTs, of course, but he makes the argument that 
you are put in the position of neutralizing the suffering of the urban poor on a regular basis and but that the system doesn't really get at the root causes of of that suffering and i'm just wondering does this resonate with your experience for sure yeah i i, I agree with him on, the, on that point it's um ems is used as um to put like a band-aid on whatever problems as is coming up and then we shuttle them to the hospitals where they are supposed to get the help they need but you see frequent flyers when you have patients you get every week with the same problems you get of the same call type um there's a lot of times where at least on the 911 side there's a lot of times where you could you realize that social workers need to be involved in a case like this um when you have like edp calls you know um emotionally disturbed people calls those calls most of the time don't need police or ems involvement they resources to help them get to the places they need to be or you know medicine management things like that um and it puts a lot of strain in the hospitals and staff and, and due to that um and you saw with covid we were told not to not not to bring patients but we were told to kind of treat and release patients that didn't need the hospital which is something that was not really said to us before um and it's you know the what you were supposed to do is that you're supposed to see the severity of their case. And then if it was something that didn't need to be a hospital, you would release them, tell them that you should go to the doctor or just wait out at home so they don't catch COVID. Um, and I think, you know, like, um, and you, you see some of the, like the discourse now, if like they want social workers in the field for some of these um, calls instead of police, I think that's the response to that. Yeah, it really sounds like a lot of the job for you crosses over all these lines. Like you're part social worker, uh, you're part EMT, you know, you're almost part law enforcement some of the times. It must be pretty blurry, but it does seem like overall it's really about these human encounters. Yeah. Um, yeah, it's interesting. Uh EMS, you involved in the multiple systems, not just the medical field or um, first responder fields, but you're involved with like, um, you know, law enforcement, you're involved with, you know, um, nursing, you're involved with, again, social work, like you said, um, we, there's some issues between, um, between different agencies. Um, and you have an EMS EMS is already split as in itself. You have private agencies, you have public like f fire department agencies, or you have volunteer agencies. And so sometimes we're not all on the same page. Um, um, and we're by trade have to deal with these different agencies. And also with um, nursing, uh, you know, there's a, a difference in what we do. It, it feels like a lot of the times there's some type of stigma. Um, and um, for police is, police is probably the closest agency we work with. They respond to a lot of the same calls we do. Um, and sometimes there's issues. Um, like just the other day, you know, we had uh, an EDP call, emotionally disturbed person call that came in. And it was for a woman who was sexually assaulted. And the police officers wanted us to use chemical restraints like ketamine and things like that on them. But the paramedic on scene just spoke to her 
and was able to calm her down. But it was a clash between what the police wanted and what we wanted as, as you know, medical providers. And, you know, sometimes that, you know, affects our work in the field. <laughs> Does it get messy just navigating all those different roles and all those different institutions? If EMS is called, we're supposed to be whoever is the medical provider is the, the one in charge of the scene. Um, yeah. But <laughs> the problem is, is that, um, you know, sometimes, like, if you challenge another agency, they don't like that challenge. And so it causes problems. Um, but if it has to do with the patient, we're supposed to be in charge. Um, if it's an EMT that responds and they're in charge, or if it's a paramedic, which is one step higher, they'll be in charge, whoever's the medical authority. Um, but, but yeah, I mean, we're also, we work so close to cops sometimes that um, when we respond to a scene, we kind of just go with the flow of the police officer. It happens sometimes. And, you know, you see that too. So I'm struck by how complex the job is and just how much kind of deafness it takes and how much care with uh, dealing with people. Right, for sure. Yeah. I think, you know, a lot of the media or, you know, you see EMS in television, it's like, you know, rushing the person into ER on the gurney. And the reality is, is that usually you're like waiting in a hallway with five other gurneys as like you're being processed, you know, <laughs> like, a, like a shopping cart line. Um, and it's, you know, the, the more the, the more interesting things are, you know, how we work to, you know, help people just get through what they have to get through. You know, you see people on their worst days on like some of the toughest moments in their life and then you get them to a, a better point. That's, you know, the best part of the job. How similar or different was that work to the work you normally do? Yeah, it was very different. I mean, FEMA runs on like, the federal level, runs really differently from different states. Um, here in New York, they had the Bronx Zoo occupied with like um, EMS crews all over the country, like Georgia, Texas, California were there. Um, and so we all had to operate under one banner. Um, and the transports were just a little different in, in the regards of like how it was organized and what type of calls you did. Um, and the Jacob Javits and the Comfort were both military run. So that's a little different procedures of bringing patients. You also served on a special task force for COVID, right? What was that like? Yeah, I, I did two different um, task force. I'm doing one currently, um, which is with um, the New York State um, Office of Emergency Management. Office of Emergency Management. Um, that's like a COVID um, hotel program that they were having done in the city. And then before that, I did with um, FEMA, I did a FEMA deployment um, for COVID when the uh, Comfort was here in New York City and they had um, made the Jacob Javits Center a temporary hospital. We did a lot of like transports with that. When you were a student here at Queens College, you took a course with me that was writing about popular music and you wrote this amazing memoir mixtape about the day of a life in an EMT. I'm just curious to hear you talk about your relationship to music on the job and you know maybe a little bit about what you did with that essay and with that mixtape. Music's uh, important. Um, I mean just by being in an ambulance all day you listen to the radio all day so you kind of 
like forced to listen to the music that's going on. <laughs> um, but no, music is, is important um, to me um, personally because it just helps me you know, unwind and it helps me relate to like what's going on um, or what I'm doing. Um, I think in my EMS mixtape, the first song I chose to put was a song from Hercules, um, which is like the don't uh, the 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 hero song, the um, the one last hope, I believe it's called, and it's about you know um, Danny DeVito's character telling Hercules how to be a hero, and I think like that relates to me a lot with EMS school because you know you think or EMT school rather because. Um, a lot of people join because they want to be, you know, a hero or get that, like, I guess that flame, that fame or that, um, that, that glory. But uh, you find out not really what that is, what the job is. What are some other tracks from that mixtape? Um, I put, I know I put Staying Alive by the BGs. Um, and that was funny to me because when I was learning how to do compressions and in EMT school, they tell you to do the compressions to um, the beat of staying alive. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. And you know the, the title is aptly named. Um, yeah. Um, what else? I think I put "Eye of the Tiger" as like an inspirational song. I put "Stay" by Rihanna. <laughs> Just there's a lot of songs that can go with. Um, EMS and actually my meta class just made a uh, we're making a like a EMS playlist on Spotify one last question when you talk about your work you're so reflective and show a lot of sensitivity but also a lot like a real kind of systematic analytical take on it as well um, you graduated from Queens College with a degree in English which does not seem like directly connected to the work you do but do you think it is connected? For sure. For sure. I, I think my English degree helps me a lot in, in a lot of ways. Um, but these being more critical and more analytical of what's going on um, is, is like one of the biggest things I take away from having the English degree. Um, there's a lot. I didn't think when I was becoming EMC that I'd be focusing more on like, you know, on, I guess, the community and, um really like delving into these patients lives and kind of like trying to see figure out different um root problems not only for any like medical ailments but like mental ailments and, and things like that and and um i think english has helped me just be more overall like a better clinician um and i mean I've, i think i talked about this in our class but um EMS itself, so you you do your physical skills, but the other half of being an EMT is documenting. It's like the biggest thing we do. Paperwork, patient care reports, things like that. Um, you know, we write scar reports or like, you know, child protection service reports. Thing, any, like, there's a lot of different paperwork that goes into our, our job. And every day I have to write like a mini essay, like five times a day, six times a day. Um, and I think, like, what what you're doing with those is that you have to write a narrative. Aside from giving demographics, you have to write a narrative, and there it's usually broken into like three categories: it would be subjective narrative, objective narrative, and your comments. So some programs have it based like that. And I always thought that was interesting having subjective and objective narrative. Um, and 
I think English helps me with my subjective narrative for sure. You see a lot of EMS providers. I have, I know at least three who are in law school or going to law school that work in like politics um, with EMS and, and, um, and, you know, working with the community. That is so interesting. And as an English professor, it's pretty great to hear. I got to say, you know, I lied. I have one more question. You talked to me one, one point about mental health and first responders. And I think you have a lot to say about that. And I think people would really like to hear it. For sure. Yeah. I think, you know, like mental health between um, firm, um, EMS workers and first responders in general is, you know, something that is, needs to be talked about more. I know that up where I work in Yonkers, our, the union president, she um, helped, you know, um, and her sister helped create like this like social work program for first responders, like like a, a, a line they can call or a resource they can call to kind of get the help they need, you know. And you saw, you were seeing in the news, like, you know, fire department, EMTs, becoming suicide, things like that. And it's just um, when you're away from the work and when you're like in your own thoughts, I guess it gets a little harder. But in, when you're with people or when you're at work, it can, that jadedness, you see it more, the humor, you see it more. Yeah, we're back to that dark humor as a way of coping. There's a lot of uh, dark humor and like harsh humor um, in EMS. And, I mean, I, I think in medicine and first and any first responder type of um, type of uh, setting because it's just I think that's just a way of you know coping with it or like rationalizing what you see. Um, you know, we make jokes all the time of just different like cases and scenarios um yeah it makes it easier for us i think thank you timothy so this has been a really illuminating and rewarding conversation and i'm really glad we got the opportunity to sit down and have it you've been listening to qc pod the podcast about all things queen's college we're on twitter at qc pod and on the web at queenspodcastlab.org slash qcpod. Our theme music is Lake Monsters by John Flansburg of They Might Be Giants. I'm Jason Tuga. Thanks for listening. <laughs>